This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I'm joined by a multi-talented hyphenate who has been recognized with a Golden Globe, a Critics' Choice Award, and an Emmy Award. She has sold out performances at Radio City Music Hall and the London Palladium, best known as the star and co-creator of the musical dramedy Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Coming up is my conversation with writer, comic, lyricist, and gold medal oversharer Rachel Bloom. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, or captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la. La 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 la. Hi. Hi. Fair to say that you're an overshare because I was reading your book of essays. Yes, yes. I do have a gold medal in extreme expulsive oversharing. That is true. <laughs> so let's just start there. The art of oversharing and how you navigate the response to it. I can't really phrase it better than I did a panel, a mental health panel a couple years ago, just full of therapists. This was like in the middle of COVID. It's actually how I found my new therapist. And someone asked, how do you know what is emotionally okay to share in your art. And one of the therapists said, process trauma. Don't share things before you have fully internalized and processed them for yourself. Because once it's out there, especially on the internet, live performances may be a little different because there's something to, unless someone's recording, but there's something to things in the moment that you can try it out and be like, oh, that didn't feel good. I'm not going to share that again. But once it's out there, it's out there. And so I think that that always has been kind of my guidepost. Anything that I'm sharing, it's not the first time I've shared it with anyone. I, I've talked about it with many people and I'm finally talking about it. And I think that it's it's nothing over which I have shame. And anything over which I have shame or I would worry would hurt someone else or is unprocessed, I just don't share. Right. Well, that's really interesting because, again, I'm talking about the writer and thinker behind things where by the time you get it to a sitcom, you have been through not only your personal approach, but the exaggeration of it and the discussion with your staff and what's going to make that story really a narrative that's maybe inspired by those true events. But I really do like the idea that the gatekeeper there is whether you've processed it or not, because, you know, you don't really don't want to crowdsource the processing part because people can probably overwhelm you with what they think was going on for you. I think that there is a big difference between sharing things at a one-off storytelling show or a one-off live show and putting things out there on the internet or, or publicly. And I do think that you can process things while creating art. You can absolutely use art to process things. I In this latest show that I have, which is all about death and grief, it is 100% help me process the thoughts that I've and worries and fears that I've had about death, but just keeping yourself safe, knowing, okay, I'm going to share this. I'm going to share this at this event. That's okay. I'm going to see how it makes me feel, but there's almost like a little artistic callus that happens over, over things when you share them that I like. And it's partially why I'm an oversharer is when you share them enough, the, the pain kind of leaves you. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think it's liberating to not keep a secret. And particularly where it comes to grief, in conversations I've had with a few other folks creatively, one of the more interesting things was that knowing that grief is going on the ride with you 
and just not letting it take the wheel and pull you off the road. It'll swell up and it'll grab the radio dial and it'll change your mood sometimes. But as long as you don't let it derail you completely, it's something that doesn't go away. It just sort of goes on the ride in the sidecar, so to speak. So my experience, because I was grieving my, my basically my, my writing partner died of COVID a week after I gave birth to, to like almost to the day. I had to care for a newborn and it was in the middle of COVID. My husband and I really didn't have help. It's not like there wasn't time to grieve. I definitely did grieve, but I didn't have time to wallow in grief. It was very weird. And I think it's why I'm still processing some of it because it was a delayed emotional processing. Right. And well, and you had this dual situation, which was, in, as I read in the book, you had a newborn and it also stayed at the NICU unit for a while. Your attention about your new growing family and all of that was part and parcel of those moments where the duality of the other loss was happening. Yeah. And it was just too much. And I haven't, in the experiences I've had with grief and loss in the past couple of years, because there have been a couple, they're always happening while another thing is happening. And I guess that's maybe the case for a lot of grief and loss. I haven't been to a, a single in-person funeral. Or no, I went to one. Sorry. There's a, there is a fourth person I, I lost. And I did go to the in-person funeral. That was a little later. He passed away in 20, uh, late 2021. You start to understand the idea of sitting Shiva mm. and when, why all these cultures have where you just sit. It's time to grieve, but also there's an inherent distraction, which I kind of had having a newborn. I don't know. It's complicated. Yeah, no, I'm not. And I don't need to probe in, in any of it. I just feel what's interesting for all of us is that as a creative, your job also requires you to be giving constant attention to the development of material, the walking on stage, the performing. And there are times as a performer, I can be dealing with a problem on one side of the curtain. And when I cross the threshold, I have to put on a bulletproof vest and do that performance. And I can't take it into the performance. And then I can come off stage and be in my hotel room and be bummed out. But there are moments there that you put on some kind of impervious wrap to achieve what you need to when you do this for a living. Oh, absolutely. And adrenaline does that for you. It's amazing what adrenaline can do. It's a chemical. It's like a pill. <laughs> it's a pill in itself. It is interesting the kinds of different chemical releases we get from writing, from facing a blank page, you know, where you have to muster courage, where you're facing imposter syndrome or fraud. And then the next day or a week later, when the writing is done and you have to go into the pitching, each stage seems to have its own uh, series of obstacles, which take a different part of your brain or personality. Uh, particularly criticism. I, I loved reading in your book, the no talent tweet story. On Twitter, somebody says, you have no talent. And that gets to you. Maybe you can describe to the listener. So my book is a kind of a mix of autobiography and almost sketch comedy essays because it's how I think. And the final story is based on a thing that happened where I saw a tweet that said, you have no talent. And I saw it on the day, I want to say day Crazy Ex-Girlfriend premiered, and it really was upsetting. And then the story gets fictitious in that I travel the world to make sure everyone likes me because the idea <laughs> right. of someone not liking me and thinking I have no talent is so unbearable. And in this story, I throw away my career. I basically change political parties to please every political party. And finally, I find this person, uh, I want to say in like rural China, and they're like, it was me. I said, you have no talent. And then 
we're sucked into and I'm that person and then we're sucked into a wormhole because I I turns out I was the center of the universe. It was me grappling with that feeling and I think a lot has been said about social media and how hurtful it can be for for everyone not just people in in the public eye and there's really no difference between internet comments and bullying. Uh, internet comments that hurt you and bullying as far as how it feels to you because at the end of the day if you are affected negatively by a comment it is pointing out something that you secretly fear about yourself and you think that person's the smartest person in the world <laughs> and every compliment goes out the window because and I think this depends on who you are I know some people who are very confident in themselves and aren't affected by the internet this way and God bless them for it but there is something to if a bully said to me, I don't like your hair, it's purple. My hair's not purple. That taunt wouldn't make any sense. But if it's stuff that I fear about myself, oh boy, you're off to the races. Yeah. And what's interesting about it, for the most part, you can somehow take the one bad thing and amplify it as if everybody is saying it and everybody is looking at you as you walk down the street as that no talent versus the idea of the thousands of people who may adore you, that somehow doesn't carry the same amount of weight on the scale of justice. I'm very proud of this podcast. It was something we created during COVID as a way to be hopeful and to talk about creative process because we didn't have venues at the time. We still had a voice. So out of the box, we end up with all these five-star complimentary reviews. And then I see one one-star review. And I look at it and I read it. And the hilarious part about it, I'm like, one star. I mean, this isn't even like dropping down to three stars. This is like the other end of the barrel of the gun. And I read it and the very last part of it says, and of course I like this because the, my son is the host. It was my mom. No, who meant to put five stars. Oh, that is so funny. <laughs> to her, one star was the best. And once she did it, she couldn't remove it. And she called to apologize. I go, it, do, it, do, it doesn't matter. Like, it's not like, That's don't worry so about it. so funny. But it's so funny and it's so close to home. And it seriously, until I read it, I, th I was like, who is this person? The woman that gave me birth is the one person. <laughs> who's going to drop my average to the bottom. She listens to this podcast. So I, I love her. And I, I think it's dear that she thought, you know, one star was the best. And so she, she went for it. It sounds like you have a good relationship with your mother. So this probably doesn't apply, but I think that that's very apt that the person who gave you birth can hurt you the most, because I think that is the case with, oh, let's be vague and say a lot of people in the entertainment industry. There's this type of therapy I've had friends do called imago therapy, which is like a couple's therapy. And I think the theory of it is that the person who can hurt you the most can also heal you. Mm. And that is our parents. Wow. Yeah, that is true. I wrote a personal piece, not as deeply personal as many of the things I've seen you handle, which I think you handle not only with grace and humor, but it's the authenticity of it is so impressive to me because for many, many years as a comedy writer, obviously I went for the makeup version of something, make people laugh, make them feel good, give them something upbeat. And I kind of stayed away from the personal, I think for fear of being exposed and realizing much later, the vulnerability was a superpower. I wrote this piece of called Pat Hazel's permanent record. And it's about everything I did wrong in life that should have kept me from succeeding. And during it, I realized in telling those stories, it was less about getting a laugh. It was less about getting everybody's approval. And it was more about, I have a story to tell. And what I found out 
is people connected with the willingness to admit everything. And that included sending a kind of 60 minutes camera crew to talk to my mom, because I thought if she told me the stuff, she would soft serve it. She would be complimentary. And those are the most precious videos because she admits to things like I put a bowl of Cheerios in the crib for these kids. I didn't wake up and like, I just wanted to sleep in. Like, And it's pretty great to hear those kind of reality. And then she started asking me, I don't even remember taking you to school. Did you run to school every day? so funny. And as a parent, I have to say, I've I've heard a story about a friend leaving a box of Cheerios on the floor in the morning uh, so they could just like pour themselves Cheerios. And before kids, I'm like, oh my God, now I completely get it. The idea of parenting is so much more work than people realize, especially if your career is building and you're active in the pursuit of something, you really getting that balance down and just having that time because it drains, both sides get drained on that, trying to balance it. I don't think you ever do. Do you have kids? I do. I have two sons. They are now old enough. They're completely independent and have their own sarcasm they use against me and all of, all of the things that I did as, an, as a, a kid. I now realize I'm the dad they're mocking that I used to mock. I've become that character that can't remember what I'm saying, you know, the the forgetful person that's trying to remember the name of the gadget. But it is weird how it used to be that that was really funny to tell those stories about my dad. <laughs> and now I I still do them in my stand-up, but I also realize and self-actualized enough to realize I've completely become my act. All I'll say is you could do a lot worse than your kids being like, oh, you're so forgetful. That sounds very lovely. <laughs> Well, they're hilarious in their own right. It's kind of fun to get a dose of your own medicine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my daughter's three. It's really complicated. I It's always a struggle between the two. And I get it now, the whole work-life balance thing. I think it's different than balancing your relationship with your partner because your partner understands what we're doing and what this industry is and what work is and and my, my husband is, is also a writer and director, so he understands. But my daughter doesn't. And it's kind of a almost a different part of my brain, the side that loves her and takes her to school. And it's almost like my brain and my, my life feels a little split. And I'm sure that will grow and change. But I was just talking to a fellow mom yesterday who travels for work because in this industry now, if you're acting, you are traveling different places for work. And I said, what's the answer? You know, do you take your kid with you? Do you not? And she's like, it's always a debate. It's always a struggle. And the idea that there is no right answer because the industry is fundamentally not made for families is calming, but also scary. And I'm in the middle of these debates constantly right now. I would say it's disappointing, to be honest, because it feels like the industry would understand, particularly with mothers, the importance of that, because really those moments you talk about from the other side of your brain, fill your tank in a different way. If you're there and your child's asleep on your chest for whatever small period of time it is, boy, you know, your battery's filling up fast. And if you're not able to do anything but say goodnight over FaceTime from far away, it drains you like immediately. There was a time before my kids were really in kindergarten or first grade where they traveled with me and they did not know what really what my job was because in the daytime we go to the zoo or the aquarium and then 
they'd go to bed at the hotel and I'd go do the show and I'd come back next morning. We would have breakfast. I remember my son Tucker was in maybe second or third grade. He came to say, what does I do for a living? And I said, well, you know, and he says, well, I know this, you go on vacation a lot. Oh, <laughs> because he assumed also that every time I was in those cities, I was going to zoos and aquariums, That's even without so him. But it was lovely because he also remembered some of the great things. I said, well, what part of my job do you remember? Oh, and the greatest room is the green room. That's where the free crackers and candy oh, and so same with my same with my daughter she loves a green room that's yeah. so funny and they love the empty theater my boys ran in the seats during sound checks and between chairs and you know that was super fun i did not have parents who worked at all in this the entertainment industry my life is very dissimilar from the life that i grew up in so i have no frame of reference it's a constant push and pull and different people do different things. Some people have their kids travel with them. You know, I, fi I figure once she gets into elementary school, especially, and she has a set life and set friends, like, no, you want to generally leave her in her space. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me jump to a couple of things. One, I stumbled across this great, I'll call it a interviewsical because you were on with Stephen Colbert and you we're doing an interview that became a musical or a musical number called Anything Can Be a Musical. It was a fantastic duet between you and Stephen. I think that kind of embodies the kind of work that you do, which was sort of meld a little reality with a little fantasy and showcases all of your talent. How much fun was that? Oh, so fun. And I didn't write that number. I forget who wrote that. I, I forget if that was, was that Eric Drysdale who maybe wrote that? I forget who wrote that. So that whole experience... If you're talking to me about any, any memory in late 2015 or early 2016 and you look at any video, that is a 27-year-old being shot out of a cannon because <laughs> what happened was I won the Golden Globe. I skipped work the, the day after I won the Golden Globe. I finished the episode which we were shooting, which was, I think, episode 114, episode 14 of the first season. I got on a red eye to New York. That night I was on Colbert. And, you know, doing a musical number with Stephen Colbert, I was so tired. I still hadn't really processed what ha <laughs> what happened. And so when you look at me in that musical number, that is adrenaline. That is adrenaline kicking in. That is like show pony kicking in because I was like, oh, my God. I, and it's one take. And, yeah, there's a prompter. But, like, I think there's one part where I do garble the words a little bit. And I was like, oh, I can't believe I garbled that word. That whole trip was insane. I think I did Colbert. And then I did two morning shows. And then I flew back and I filmed Crazy X. It was wild. And, and, and a couple of days, Hamilton was playing. And I bought myself a ticket. It was $800, you know, for any ticket to Hamilton at that time. I saw Hamilton and just the weight of that whole week caught up with me. And the audience, you know, standing ovation. And I was sobbing because I was like, I can't believe I'm living at a time where a musical about a historical figure is eliciting a Star Wars response. And I was just sobbing and sobbing. And I was so tired. Yeah, but it's something about theater, communal theater, and that a moment of contagious response. I think that's probably what we both experience when we're doing stand-up performance, is that there is absolutely no trade for that wave where everybody is making a decision to laugh at once and realizing that this is what makes humanity happen. 
is sort of that shared experience. The show that I'm doing, we change it up a little bit every night because I'm still experimenting with it, but it's this solo show that I've been doing, which, well, spoiler alert, it turns into a two-person show, but it's basically kind of a stand-up mixed with a, a one-act musical. And anyway, every night is different because of the audience. And I love mistakes. I actually love audience members being weird <laughs> and making mistakes more than anything. And there was this one time where in London, the, the music, music cut out. It was a glitch. And we finished a song a cappella, and it was beautiful. I love mistakes. And how was your reception? I know you sold out the Palladium in London. That was a couple years ago. So now at this show, the show's a little bit smaller. So I, I played a smaller theater called the Bloomsbury Theater, and I did four shows. The Palladium, when we sold that out, was two shows, and this was four. Okay, and that one was a reflection more of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend the Palladium show, right? That was on the heels. I think it was Build Crazy Ex-Girlfriend Live. So the Palladium and Radio City were both, the show had ended a month or two before and it was like our victory lap. And thank God we did it because it, it was weird. The way we celebrated the show ending with all these, we did all these live shows and we really hung out as a cast and we went to all these amusement parks because I'm a child. Right. <laughs> Not only were we like carping the diem, but it was as if we almost knew something was going to end and COVID happened. And, and the Palladium show is so special to me because there was something about, so Radio City Music Hall was unbelievable. It's 6,000 people, but it's very large and it's very far back. There is a little bit of a delayed audience reaction. The Palladium is, I believe, 2,500 seats, and it's very front. So you can really feel the energy up close. And those shows, there was something really, really magical about them. And that was the basically the last time I performed with Adam. Mm. Oh, yes. Which is the partner that you lost, the co-writer of, of your music. And just to give context to the listener here. Yeah. So Adam Schlesinger was the music producer and one of the songwriters on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. The main songwriters were me, Adam Schlesinger, and Jack Dolgen, who's been my writing partner and my music producer for uh, 12 years now. But, but Adam, very quickly, me, Adam, and Jack became this trio. And Jack was on his honeymoon, so he couldn't come to London. So Adam and I went to London along with some of the other cast. And it was just so cool like it was so special and he was a genius if you don't know his credits just look him up but he went he and I were in the middle of working on a musical when he died and he was someone that I was so excited to collaborate with for the rest of my life and I was fully confident even though he was 20 years older than I was that he would live as long <laughs> as me because he had such a fire and such an invincibility and it still doesn't make sense that he's gone. I would tell you that he's still an archangel because his influence and the way you wrote together, you're part of the legacy of, of the work that he did that will carry on. That's just aspirational, I guess. I hope. I hope. I try to, I try to like, when I write something, picture what he'd say. And there's a, I still have to go. His ashes are buried under a tree in upstate New York. And I, I'm, I want to visit the tree and like pitch it jokes. Oh, I love that. Why not? Why not? You'll watch that tree grow when you tell that joke, I will tell you. <laughs> or it'll wilt, and I'll be like, okay, noted. <laughs> well, that's how you'll know whether you like the joke or not. So make it a good one. You mentioned amusement parks there, and I did read in your book that one of your ultimate goals is to create an original amusement park aimed just at adults. So I was intrigued by the, the name of it, the original narrative fun times thrill world. And you drew the map in the book. So tell the audience a little bit about not just your 
how you get there, because I know you, you grew up within the trifecta of amusement parks in Southern California, but what's your fascination with the amusement park as a folly? Well, there are a couple things. So I, I feel a very clean line between who I was as a kid and who I am now. I know that I've changed a lot. I think some people look back on themselves, especially pre-puberty, and they're like, oh God, I don't even remember what I was thinking. I do have some a memory of what motivated me, what I was thinking. And so I think there's a natural childlikeness that is still inside me. I always loved amusement parks. I was an only child, so I had a very active imagination. I had a lot of imaginary friends. And my parents and I would go to amusement parks a lot. And amusement parks, especially Disneyland, are places to dream and imagine. So I'd be in the line for Indiana Jones, and I'd have little daydreams in my head that I was an explorer. And as I got older, I realized I loved amusement parks because it's theater. It's creating a narrative. It's almost like 5D theater. It's taking you on a journey. It's creating a story. It's theater that also does things to your body, depending on what ride you're on. It's immersive theater. It is. It is. And so I just think that that the fact that you can tell a full story, but so much of it now has to fundamentally be based in IP, in existing movies and stories that if you haven't seen the movie, you're like, what's going on? I just think that's a bummer. And I also think it's a bummer that it's geared for children because I think adults can get just as much enjoyment out of amusement parks. I'm starting to see that roller coasters are better for younger bodies. Like the older I get, I love roller coasters, but the older I get, I need to take more breaks in between. I need a full big breakfast going yeah. and I really need a good night's <laughs> sleep. It's, it's putting your body through, through trauma, but I love them. And so it was important for me to put in the book because it's a part of who I am. And I, I think that that idea of, of original stories put on rides has not been mined because it's so ex it's so expensive. <laughs> like it's so expensive to make an amusement park. Ultimately, they have to brand it to sell tickets to it. That's why they're borrowing the IP of something that says, oh, I can be like Harry Potter. I can be like something. But where you and I differ is I cannot stand roller coasters. I can't stand those any of those rides where they spin and you stick up against the wall. Like, well, that's not a roller coaster. I know, I know, but all of them, they're all physical abuse. They are. As a kid, I would go and I would brave it. I would get on a roller coaster and I was just sick afterwards for hours. I was just like, whoa, because it just was like a such a shock to my system. And then I, when I realized I was old enough to say, hey, I'll, I'll hold the icy cups while you guys ride. I enjoyed the park. And I enjoyed everything about all of it. But I thought, who am I trying to prove anything to that I'm going to get on this roller coaster and then have a horrible day? Like I rode on some kind of Batman ride that was kind of a um, roller coaster up in the air. And my glasses pressed so hard against my face that it left this like indentation. Sure. And, and yeah. it was there for three days. And I, you know, just <laughs> I looked like a scowly curmudgeon. And I thought, oh, this is just a the mark of the devil on me that I shouldn't have gotten on that ride. And the thing is, I get it, especially now that if I go on too many roller coasters in a row, if I don't have a good meal in me, I do start to get nauseous. So I completely get it. And I, I still love them. I get it. Listen, by the way, this is not going to separate our friendship. I will definitely stand down by the baby stroller and you can ride them all day long. It is tricking your body into being in peril. And the thing I don't like, so the thing I, I don't like jump scares. Mm. I don't like those Halloween mazes where people jump out of you. That's bad adrenaline for me. <laughs> uh, but my friend, uh, Donna Lynn, who actually was on crazy ex-girlfriend, completely opposite does not like roller coasters, 
loves being scared. That's funny. Seeks out the craziest, scariest haunted houses. So who who knows? It's basically what trauma does your mind like? What trauma gives your mind, I guess, dopamine? And what trauma gives your mind fight or flight? And you can't pick it. Right. It's like the good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. Right. I liked in the early part of your book where you described yourself (laughs) in reflection as a pale kid. It said with uh, transition lenses, a rolling backpack, lopsided bangs from a self-inflicted haircut. Isn't it interesting that that's where we begin to define ourselves? Like when you give yourself a haircut, that's a choice. (laughs) For whatever it is, suddenly you want to be something else or you... You want to be independent or do you like, can we just explore that time when you were cutting your own bangs and. Oh, there was a lot going on. Middle school (laughs) was really, really, really rough for me. I just didn't fit in in Southern California. I was a theater kid and by the beach in Southern California at that time. Now it's a little more theatery. Now I feel like you have more in the town. I grew up Manhattan beach. I think that, well, it's fundamentally gotten wealthier in the more, I think, liberal way. So I think it's gotten more artsy-fartsy, which is good for kids like me. But at the time, there were art, there were some arts programs, but like it just wasn't the majority of people. And I, I very much felt like I was a New Yorker, even though I'd never been to New York. And my mom weirdly feels like a New Yorker, even though she's only ever lived in California. My dad's from Boston. So there was just this feeling of me and my whole family, frankly, feeling incredibly out of place in so many ways. I never understood fashion and how people get that. My mom is super not into fashion. Like I, we created this character in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. My character's mom was very into like staying skinny and fashion. And that, that actually is not, not my mom at all. In fact, almost the opposite. Very against fashion. I developed, in retrospect, what is, what is I think, crippling obsessive compulsive disorder. And I had it, I had crippling intrusive thoughts. And so... There was a lot going on, and and in many ways, I'm still pro- processing that trauma. Even though I've talked about it and written about it, just a couple weeks ago, I I for for fun, I went online and I took a an OCD quiz, like psychological <laughs> quiz aimed at kids, just for fun. And I answered the questions the way I think I would have answered when I was 11. This type of thing of wanting to explore my psyche is very different obviously than what obsessive compulsive disorder feels like um this was more just being interested and I scored very high from what my memories <laughs> of what it was like at age 11 I my obsessions were like high and then my compulsions were like moderate because I learned how to control them it was a very rough time and and you know for how expulsive the book is there are things from that time that I don't share because they affect people who are still alive that and it's not my story so there 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 are still things that i'm holding back that maybe someday i'll share and i think that's what's interesting is i think there are very few artists and comedians out there who are sharing truly everything right and first of all let me applaud you for knowing that that those things are important for the protection of others i mean it, you are really funny and you're really authentic but there are people who do overtell other people's story. So I'm saying knowing that boundary and knowing how much to take a shot at yourself and leave the window closed on it getting splashing on other people. It's for my own health too. Ultimately, it's selfish. I don't want to destroy relationships. I don't want to antagonize people who are already miserable. It's it's always a balancing act. Now that I have a kid, I think all of that 
thinking that I've done about, okay, what to share, when to share it is relevant because I share very little about her. And that's really also spearheaded by my husband who is a who is not a private person, but more private than I am. And I've shared very little about her. And as more studies, so oversharing on social media affects kids as they grow up, I'm very grateful that I've still kept my cards close to my chest when it comes to her. And it makes me even more motivated to just, because if I overshare about her now, she's not going to know, right? She doesn't know. She's not going to know. She's not going to know anything. This is for 10 years from now, for 20 years from now. By the way, the internet has a long memory, and so therefore she will see it. It has a forever memory, and so I'm very mindful of that. And I think that being mindful of sharing certain things about friends and family has prepped me for that a little, that you can't share everything and that your own mental health and your own relationships are ultimately more important. It's something that we've paid less and less attention to until more recently in terms of in the world. And also I think COVID and the amount of different kinds of triggers and the different kinds of therapy and the different kinds of online access, the strongest people we know have been impacted in ways that they are vulnerable to their mind and what's going on. And I feel like kind of owe each other a little bit more grace. I'm so glad to be off Twitter. I, I have to log into my Twitter once a month because I still want to keep my username. Whenever I log back in once a month, it feels like I'm doing like a line of cocaine. <laughs> it's just like, inst oh my God, I can say anything and, and, and I'll get anyone's response right away. And it's different even with Instagram, which is also harmful, but I engage in it because it's a part of my career and I have very mixed feelings about social media. But it's different even than Instagram because you don't get that instantaneous like, response to your thought in that moment in the same way and it is just so bad for my brain personally yeah we've mentioned the book a few times but i don't think i've called it by name so i want to be sure that the listener has a chance to buy and read this book rachel bloom wrote i want to be where the normal people are essays and other stuff and i see that as a reference to a little mermaid was this a a, a song or moment that has stuck with you that particular one that you're making fun of there, or it was just a, a way to kind of wedge the search for normalcy into that title? Well, I think that there, I wanted to work into the title something that acknowledged my personality, which is very based in musicals and Disney. But I think also a big part of myself is the juxtaposition between the very, very light and the very, very dark. And there's no kind of, I don't know, lighter, happier movie than The Little Mermaid. It, it was a staple of my childhood. It's now becoming a staple of my daughter's childhood, which is so weird. The idea of being on the bottom of the ocean floor looking up, I relate to a lot. I understand. So that, that was from the song, Part of Your World. Now, is that a song that you have sung among your uh, things that you do on stage at all? or? I used to sing it all the time. It's funny. Just this morning, my daughter said, play Up Where They Walk, Up Where They Walk. I was like, oh, no, it's called Part of Your World. But something about up where they walk stuck with her, right? So, like, that's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Now, you claimed in the book, and again, I absolutely believe this, that you desperately wanted to be popular. So, it's totally understandable. But you now are wildly popular. But I still have insecurities. Certain comedians I meet who were like always cold to me and it makes it, it does bring me back to middle school a little bit where I'm like, <laughs> what did I do to you? And it makes you focus on like the one person who's being cold and they're probably just a cold person. It has nothing to do with you. And that's just, it's a, it's a fundamental, not even self-esteem, but self-love thing. And there's a difference. I'm re I'm reading a workbook about 
self-love and the difference between self-love and self-esteem is self-esteem is almost conditional on your qualities. Self-esteem is like, no, I am beautiful. I am smart. Self-love is even if I'm not beautiful, even if I'm not smart, I love myself no matter what. And that is so radical to me. It's not only radical though, it's very difficult for most people to understand. Oh, it's so, it's so hard. I've explored that myself while I'm funny and I'm talented. I do. I think, oh, what is it about just looking yourself in the mirror sometimes to just say, hey man, you're okay. This is above any spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, anybody telling you, you know, we love to see that mirrored in other people's eyes, but to see it in your own eyes and to be okay with yourself is a complicated thing. And many people I don't think realize how much they mask the good service they do in the world and all of that for wanting that approval of others to remind themselves that they're not a terrible person. While it seems simple to say, I love you to yourself, it is one of the more complicated tasks in any day or or month as you go through it. I want to go back to the Upright Citizens Brigade in LA. These were your early training grounds. Well, even before then, Upright Citizens Brigade in New York. And then I moved to LA. Okay, so you started it in New York. I did. And you got to do a lot of musical theater in that situation with some of your Quick and Funny musicals. Well, Quick and Funny musicals was in LA after I moved there, and that really kept me in the UCB space, which is a a musical show that still exists in some form at UCB. I did improv classes and sketch classes at UCB New York, and then the first solo show I put up was a musical sketch show. Okay. Is this kind of written improvisationally on the fly, or is it something that you spent a lot of time developing the content I was on a sketch comedy group in college, founded by and then directed by kids, kids, college students who were also taking classes at UCB and then bringing it to this college sketch group. So we put up a a brand new sketch show once a month. We had a writer's meeting every week where I would try to write at least two new sketches. So for four years, I was writing two new sketches a week and it was just great training and I wish live theater for everyone frankly who's going into comedy or writing even if you don't end up going into theater because it is a place you can fail with low stakes it's not like the internet where everyone can see it and it's on there forever it truly is you can fail and experiment and the ability to fail in a safe space is so important And it's a boot camp, really, too, because you're developing the skills. What you learned in that and the amount of volume of material and the responsibility of having something next week or next month is ultimately what prepared you for series writing. And there's a high demand. What the audience doesn't know that you need to do a lot of things at the same time. You have to record your vocals between your acting sequences. You have to go back in the writer's room and write. You have to oversee the editing of the previous episode. All of this you have to be able to do without questioning yourself. I guess it's an accelerated learning thing where you start to learn how to manage your time. This is most people I know who come from any sort of performance where you're making your own theater. So at NYU, I was in this, the musical theater studio, and then I transferred to the experimental theater wing. And a lot of that is making your own work. And the people I know who did that, a lot of them are still making their own work. And same thing with people from uh, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. When you start making your own work, be it a sketch comedy show, a sketch, you start to understand production and how everything comes together. And there was recently something I was at 
it was this like karaoke night that was being organized and I got there and they, they didn't have like a real mic or a real amp. And it was like, wait, wait, this is a karaoke night though. And production me kicked in. I was like, okay, here's what we need. We need this. We need this. And, and my husband, though, is the same way. He was like, wait, 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 you need this and you need this. And, and I'm like, I know they need this and they need this and they need this. <laughs> and there is something from being scrappy and having to create your own thing because you don't have the money to pay anyone else to help you. It gives you a global look at a thing that you don't get from just having written alone in a space. And, and I'm very lucky to have that. And if needed, I could still produce my own shoot. I could be a solo producer of my own shoot. I would hate it and I'm not flawless at it, but I generally, if you're like, okay, put together a two day shoot, I generally know how to do that. And that comes from doing my own YouTube videos, but also just being around a bunch of people at UCB who are also doing this. And I think that <clears throat> something that struck me when Crazy Ex-Girlfriend got ordered to series was people were like, wow, you're doing it all. You're doing it all. That's amazing. And, and there was a part of me that's like, yeah, but I've been doing it all for a while. And there are so many people. And when I say doing it all, what I really mean is writing and, and being in the editing room. And I'd been doing that for a while. I just had someone believe in me enough to order, to order a, a show that I also, by the way, co-created with Aline Brush McKenna. I guess what I'm saying is for every show that gets ordered and for every person that gets credit, they probably had six shows that they also could have done well that didn't get ordered. And there are probably 6,000 people around that person who had good ideas for shows that didn't get ordered. The number of talented people that I am around still who have great ideas for shows and they just never go, but they would be fantastic showrunners and they'd be fantastic at, do at doing their own thing. I didn't pop out of the earth and say, I want to make my own YouTube videos. This was very, very much influenced by others around me, including some of my best friends and my husband. The way actually my husband sold his first show when he was 23 was he just had a script and he and his friends filmed a, like a scene from the show. And not many people were doing that at the time in 2004. So, so it's, you know, we're all influenced by the people around us. Right. But you describe producer brain, which, which I like, that's how I started. I started out like, you know, with a magic act and some juggling or whatever, but I did, what I did realize was that what I was developing was a producer's ability because you got to mend your own costume. You got to fix your props. You got to figure out how to get there. There's so many times that it, not just the show must go on, but the notion that you have to make your own forum of where to do it and when to do it and how to charge and who to pay, all of that is producership. And it's very cumulative. So you get really good, you get really intuitive. I know when I go to do a, a day of errands, it's my producer brain that says, here's the right order to do things in. Here's the shortest method from dry cleaner to bank. I know what's happening when I go, no, that's not going to happen today because I need to prioritize this. And I think for good or ill, as being wired that way, we begin to problem solve uh, globally, as you said. And it's a great skill to have when there's a crisis. It's a great skill to have. And this is everyone in the entertainment industry. If you go see a play rehearsing, if you go to a film set, everyone there is working for the most part, at 100%. Not because they're afraid of getting fired, but because they love what they do and they're demanding excellence from themselves. And I didn't really realize it until my dad, he's retired now, but my dad was a lawyer for healthcare companies and so worked in an office for most of his life. And my dad loves what he does. He's obsessed with <laughs> healthcare law. 
I wrote, I wrote on the show Robot Chicken, which is still on Adult Swim. And Robot Chicken is a stop motion sketch comedy show, which by the way, writing on a sketch group totally prepared me to write on that show because you're expected to write three, four new sketches a day. Uh, I took him to Robot Chicken and Robot Chicken has a whole room where the dolls are made. And then kind of the building next to it is where everything's being filmed. And it's these little sound stages because you're filming toys and dolls. And so it's like a set, but it's, you know, the size of a, a desk. And my dad was like, this is unbelievable. I've never been to a workplace where everyone is working at maximum capacity, 100%, and they are experts at what they do. He's like, this is not usual. This is not what an office space is like, right? Because like the odds of if you work in an office that it's your passion, not everyone there, it's going to be their passion. But but if you're in film or TV or theater, the workload is so terrible. <laughs> you have to kind of love what you're doing and be pursuing it for excellence. And my, and my seeing how blown away my parents are every time they came to set really made me realize oh yeah I'm, I'm really surrounded by exceptional people everywhere I go yeah it's funny I talked to Adam Savage on this podcast about the times where he was working I think at Lucasfilm and he just marveled looking around at everybody who did every little detail and said wow this is like a dream team I mean, what am I even doing here? Now, this is a guy who's crazy talented at problem solving and design and all sorts of things, but he knew he was in the major leagues when he was even early on doing that kind of work at Lucasfilm. Art still seems like magic. That's what's great about technique is technique is in a way like the cheat behind it all. Once you learn technique, you're like, oh, okay, it's not like magical that someone came up with a thing. I understand how they got those steps, but I don't understand anything with visual art technique. I don't understand the first thing about it. I cannot draw. Any sort of visual art is magical to me. My husband can draw dinosaurs. He's just been good at drawing dinosaurs. He's a drawer. He might as well be Picasso. I don't understand it. I don't understand how he's doing what he's doing because I know nothing about drawing. Yeah, but I feel the same way about writing music and lyrics. Where you come up with that, when you hear music in your head, to me, that's a completely magical, marvelous experience. I admire composers. I admire lyricists because it's just a different way to communicate. So I I yes. get where jokes are born, right? I observe things and say, oh, I could, I could describe that in a funny way. But I've walked down the street with composers who said, shh, quiet, I hear it. And I'm thinking, what? You hear that? truck going by it's like no don't say anything till i get to the piano and i go okay i know i'm in the company of some kind of genius and you do that frequently in communicating through musical theater and then subsequently through working with your choreographer and other folks to find how does the choreography amplify the humor or the storytelling that's what's so cool about the series that you made is it really speaks to your fantasy worlds where you could go between things and kind of expose to people how how your thoughts become a different reality. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. As we wrap up here, one, I want to thank a mutual friend, Seth Barish, for the introduction. I know that you're working with him, as we say, secretly or openly? No, no. <laughs> I, have, I have a live show that I've been doing around the country in a longer run, maybe coming, stay tuned, called Death Let Me Do My Special. And Seth has been my director now on it for about a year and a half. And so Seth is just 
He's just the best person. He's an extraordinary director called The Invisible Director by Mike Birbiglia because people don't seem to know what he does. It's like a compliment that people are so natural in their storytelling that you don't really see that influence. But you know from working with the guy, it's that dialogue along the way to discover how to be as authentic in that storytelling. I think that's that's what he's so good at. The other thing, and this goes back to your book, because I want to be sure people do get a chance to read the book. I want to be where the normal people are is the book. You talk about in that flight of fancy that you took about people insulting you in any way that you would then go to the trouble to promote them and amplify them and even somewhat bribe them and give an endorsement. So I don't know if I should insult you as we close the show. <laughs> I don't really want to because I actually very much appreciate your investing the time doing this, but I can't wait to see the next chapter. And we're all going to keep an eye out. So Rachel Bloom, thank you so much for, for being so Bloom and talented. Oh, thank you for having me. This was lovely. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty.